How do journalists stay safe online? Social media has left journalists exposed, vulnerable to abuse and harassment, either at the hands of individual trolls, a mob, or even a state. Studies show this issue particularly affects women. Research by the International Centre for Journalists and UNESCO found 73% of female journalists have experienced online harassment in some form. Journalists of colour, LGBTQIA journalists, journalists with disabilities and indigenous journalists are also more likely to suffer online abuse. And this evidently will have a detrimental effect to journalists' well-being as well as democracy. Journalists under attack might self-censor or even leave the profession. So it's absolutely critical media organisations and journalists know what they can do to prevent those attacks from happening in the first place, as well as know the proper response when it does happen so their journalists are well looked after. In this podcast, we'll be exploring these issues, as well as the solutions. I'm Harry Locke, and from the Public Media Alliance, this is Media Uncovered. This podcast is a recording of a panel session that PMA hosted back at the beginning of April as part of PSM Unpacked, a series of roundtable sessions which is exclusive to our members where we examine different issues relevant to public media. This session features a discussion between Joe Hill, he's CBC Radio Canada's Senior Director of Security and Resiliency, Lucy Westcott, the Committee to Protect Journalists Emergencies Director, and Nicole White, ABC's Social Media Wellbeing Advisor. The discussion, which was held via Zoom, is chaired by PMA's Advocacy Coordinator, Desalon Daniels. So the first important thing to discuss is where we are currently regarding the digital safety threats facing journalists. Could you each provide some insights, whether it's from an organizational or an individual level, about where we stand at the moment? Well, it's increasingly getting worse, unfortunately, in my estimation. We uh, started about a year ago, a very simple thing at CBC Radio Canada, and that's a simple email, security.securite at cbc.ca or security at radiocanada.ca. For people, for... um, sending us their online abuse. It's unfortunately been very successful. A lot of people are using it, but that's good in the fact that it gives us uh, data, uh, but we're under no uh, delusions that everybody's using it because uh, unfortunately people build up calluses and they think it's just part of the job. And that's part of what we are battling against is uh, I don't want any journalist or any employee because uh, at CBC Radio Canada, it's not just journalists that are getting online uh, hate. Or harassed um and so i don't know what the percentage is but we're not getting it all not everybody is using that but they are and that's good because it shows us trends it shows us things that we can act on which we do so getting back to the question where we're at it's um getting uh, worse it's been progressively getting worse it's been getting worse i would say i saw it getting worse but six years ago then the pandemic didn't help and uh, it kind of spiked it, but it was uh, from about six years ago, it was progressively getting worse and then it spiked. Yes, uh, Joe, I agree with you. It is unfortunately getting worse. This is a global problem. At the Committee to Protect Journalists, online harassment, digital safety is something that we are talking about and researching and reporting on all the time. And we recognize it solidly as a press freedom issue. In my research that I've done at CPJ, online harassment uh, is the biggest safety threat facing female journalists in the US and Canada. Um, But globally, we know it's a massive threat also. 
I'd like to just kind of go over a few of the, the main types of attacks that we are seeing globally. So of course we have doxing and the sharing and the weaponization of personal information against journalists in order of course to silence and intimidate them. Women and female journalists do tend to get the brunt of that uh, abuse. We also see and report on phishing and hacking attempts against journalists. Um, this will sometimes result in personal photos being stolen and then again being weaponized against the journalist in order to silence or intimidate them. And of course, digital or online threats. And for female journalists in particular, this can, of course, include threats of violence and sexualized threats as well. I'd also like to highlight that elections also represent a time when the online abuse and digital safety of journalists is something that has to be thought about much more. Elections are fraught, emotionally difficult times, and they can also result in quite a lot of nasty behaviour against journalists as well. I would encourage everybody to look up the situation, excuse me, involving uh, many women who work for BBC Persian. And there was a complaint filed with the UN late last month that goes into some truly harrowing detail about some of the threats that those journalists face and while on the very extreme end of the spectrum, it's worth everybody reading that complaint because it just shows the lengths that some people will go to, both private individuals, but of course also governments and public figures uh, in order to silence journalists. Nicole, same question to you. Uh, I think both Joe and Lucy have summed it up really well, actually, in our experience here at the ABC is very much mirroring that. We see massively underreported online abuse, even having someone in this role, I still expect that only trickle is really getting through. And if you look at the research, only 25% of journalists will report their online abuse to newsrooms. So it's really a culture shift that needs to happen, as Joe said. And Lucy, I actually quote your research all the time because 75% of the reports made have been by female journalists over the last year. So it really is gendered and you can't not consider intersectionality as well because we do find that diverse journalists, journalists of colour, journalists from the LGBTQIA plus community and Indigenous journalists are more likely to experience online abuse and it's also more likely to target their identity rather than their work. The sorts of things we're seeing are pylons and disinformation campaigns that are aiming to uh, impact the credibility of journalists the pandemic has had a massive impact. In the last quarter of last year, 65% of what crossed my desk was journalists being attacked for covering the pandemic. So that's pretty huge. And we've seen a massive increase in doxing aligned with that, which in Australia wasn't something we'd seen a lot of prior to this. So that was quite a shift. And another focus has really been on moderator wellbeing. So for our staff who work on our platforms and the things that they're exposed to, be it threats of suicide is something that they see a lot in comment fighting and a lot of racism and homophobia and, and, and that's as part of their role. So that's something we're really looking into as well. I know that your role as a social media wellbeing advisor at ABC is actually a new one for the organization. And you've been in this role since I think October, 2020, if that's correct. Could you explain what it is that you do as a social media well-being advisor? Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, it's being a point of contact when um, an incident happens. And so 
Uh, we have a reporting system as well. So when someone reports online abuse, it will go to me, to our trauma programs manager, who's a psychologist, um, and to our security team as well, so that we can all come together and bolster a response. That's been a really important part of the role, because as I said, it's a, a massively a, a culture shift that's needed so that journalists are reporting this online abuse. And in order to facilitate that, you have to show that you're going to help if, if people reach out. On top of that, it's really been about empowering journalists. So we have resources for how to respond to particular incidents so that when you're experiencing online abuse, it really leads to a fight or flight response. So just really clear steps and some of the key steps that you can take just to bolster your sort of privacy, well-being, resilience, tech things that you can do, who you should alert, um, just to really try and give some clarity in what can be a very overwhelming time. And look, ultimately, the decision for what to do is up to the journalist, but we just try and provide that guidance. Um, we also have resources around how to prepare as well. So not just being reactive, but how can we think about this when we're commissioning content? There are certain things that unfortunately we do know are high risk, certain topics or conversations or presenters, unfortunately, their characteristics. So looking from onboarding presenters, how we can psychologically prepare them, make sure they're aware, make sure they have whatever tech on platform things in place if they don't want to have their DMs on, if they don't want to have a public profile, the ABC doesn't require our presenters to do so, which is, I think, a little bit different to a lot of newsrooms as well. What you've all explained with your roles and what you've seen are like the worsening situations that are facing journalists. I mean, journalism has never been known as the safest job. That's an understatement. But the threats we're seeing are certainly more pronounced now than they've ever been. And they've certainly taken on a new dimension. Joe, security and resiliency support at CPC Radio Canada has been around for a long time. Could you explain the shifts that you've seen about six years ago that you've mentioned and how the pandemic has heightened these threats? Yeah, I think it's as simple as the pandemic made divisions. And so when you get divisions, you get people that will complain and complain uh, loudly and inappropriately, and they will lash out. So I think that is the that's the simple reason. That's the simple reason why I think the pandemic has frustrated some people. They thought one side was doing the other side wrong because of those divisions. Um, they thought our reporting was wrong and then they lash out and they lash out uh, inappropriately. And like well, a lot of people that lash out, they grab on to what is the easiest thing they think they can hurt the person they're lashing out at. I started seeing the shift six years ago where you really saw the uh, anti-mainstream media bias. That's about when it really started to ramp up, at least here in Canada. And it was a slow uh, ramp in Canada and it just kind of ramped up and ramped up and then the uh, pandemic hit and uh, it really went up. It's a reflection of what's out in society. Lucy, my next question goes out to you. Um, one shift that we've been hearing about more frequently in recent years, and you've just mentioned it, and Nicole has mentioned it as well, is about the harassment female journalists face, especially online, and the serious impact that this has on the well-being as well as their ability to do their jobs. Could you tell us about the impacts of gender-based online harassment? How have female journalists been coping? What have you been seeing and hearing? 
it can be really, really devastating. And I can speak as someone who works at CPJ and has done for the past four years, but also as a journalist who experiences myself. So there is a, a very good statistic that is always mentioned from the ICFJ. 73% of female journalists have dealt with online harassment in some form. When we look at digital uh, safety threats and we look at gender and when we look at all things related to journalist safety, we see it in three overlapping ways. And that's physical safety, digital safety and psychosocial safety. And when we're talking about online harassment, all of those things overlap. For female journalists, you know, I, I, I often see this as just a consequence of women who are journalists having a voice in public life and some people simply not responding to that very well and the abuse that they get online just being a wider representation of kind of gender-based violence in society generally. But we have heard from journalists, female journalists, that they have considered leaving their beat, leaving the profession altogether. When, when COVID happened, and it's, it's still happening now, of course, you had journalists who were just reporting in their community, reporting on things that were not controversial, and suddenly everybody became a reporter on COVID or they were writing about COVID. Now they are writing about vaccines. Suddenly, more and more journalists were open to online harassment because they found themselves reporting on, on a topic that many people didn't like. In terms of the mental health impact of online harassment can be quite devastating. One of the things that we at CPJ recommend is prevention is absolutely key. You want to make it as difficult as possible for a bad actor to use information about you against you. And you just want to kind of not get to that point of no return. And there is a lot that is empowering, as Nicole said, about preventative work as well. But if an attack does happen, we will often say, get a trusted colleague or friend to look through your mentions, try to just stay away from the device for a few days, try and just lessen that immediate impact. And I can speak more about tips and everything shortly, but it can be really, really devastating when they go through something like this or they go through an attack. And of course, many female journalists go through multiple attacks. Another wave of abuse can be triggered simply by speaking out publicly about what they experienced. Nicole, um, one thing I've been curious about is your role as what I imagine is an intermediary between ABC management and the journalists. How have the threats and the challenges we've spoken about so far impacted both ABC, the organization, and ABC's journalists? Yeah, I wouldn't say that it's shifted our approach to news gathering, but I think the, the silencing impact on an individual level that Lucy spoke to is so relevant. In terms of how the impact on management, I'm, I'm quite lucky in that our managers are, are pretty good at this and it, obviously it's a big organization and, and we're doing a lot of training up but for a manager you don't go into a management role in an editorial room thinking you're going to help journalists deal with death threats a big part of my role has also been training them up to know what their role is so that they don't have to be in that situation where they're not sure what to do either yeah I think that that's probably the biggest impact it's it's, it's the residual trauma of this as well it's not just the individual but it, it's everyone else who has to see it it's a colleague that might have to jump in and, and go through your account as Lucy said it's the manager that's helping you through it, it there's sort of ripples of this not just the individual 
what I'd like to know from each of you is what works and what doesn't work when it comes to protecting the online and digital safety of media professionals. What tips or advice could you offer to, in addition to what you've already mentioned, of course, to other organizations or journalists or perhaps even freelance media workers? Joe, for instance, would you be able to speak about the recent solutions that have come out of CBC's experience with the Freedom Convoy or perhaps CBC's hashtag not okay campaign? Yeah, so with the Not Okay campaign, that happened in November, for those that don't happen, it was uh, spearheaded by uh, CBC Radio Canada, specifically our president. She was, uh, it was very important to her. And it is simply, it's not okay. What's going on isn't okay. And it goes back to what I said earlier about, unfortunately, our journalists build calluses. And that, that's an important part of our response. So when uh, my team gets alerted by a journalist that, that uh, they're dealing with social uh, online harassment, or email harassment, because we do get uh, direct emails, and it's pretty easy to figure out somebody's email at CBC. And for each one of them, there's a, a different back-end thing that we can do. We can redirect emails. Uh, we never block, but we can redirect, and we can monitor. And on social media platforms, we have a social media monitoring uh, tool company. Uh, but none, none of it is a magic bullet. I like to think of it as... Uh, Layers of Swiss cheese, you know, Swiss cheese has holes in it. If you get enough layers of it, you're going to clog up the holes. At least you hope you do. Uh, but the main part of it is um, if somebody emails my team to the email I said earlier, we try to respond to the person within 24 hours. Now, in reality, it's usually within 24 minutes because uh, my team's always on. And the tone of the email is always, this is not okay. I'm sorry this happened to you. But if you want to talk to us, let us know and we'll, we'll talk to you and we'll walk you through some things. And then we get into the email and the email will have very, uh, here's what you can do and there'll be attachments like here's some online safety tips. And, but we also get physical safety tips as well because uh, that's also important too because uh, there is the mental part of getting attacked online, but there's also the fear of it turning physical. And uh, we find that that's a big fear with uh, uh, our people uh, and I don't blame them. And uh, on that, uh, the email address I said earlier that we set up specifically for reporting of online and digital harassment, it has turned more into just anything. And we're running now about 50-50. Uh, 50% of what we're getting is uh, physical. And that too spiked during the pandemic. That, that's the things we can do. There is no magic solution. But the biggest one is awareness. Awareness that you know we are here and we're here to help. Uh, Lucy and then Nicole, could you also maybe provide some tips or advice on what we can do realistically? Yes, absolutely. So our main tips, again, focus on those preventative measures. And we encourage journalists to do something called a self-docs, or which is basically researching yourself to see what information is out there about you publicly in order to then find that and have it taken down. I'll use two two examples of where you might have forgotten what's out there about you. So when I was in journalism school, for example, we were all encouraged to build a website on Tumblr and put our resume on that website and include our personal phone number and our personal email so that potential employers could get in touch with us one day. And when I was doing my research on this topic and I was self-doxing myself, I found that. And it was from maybe six or seven years prior and I was horrified, but it meant that I could take it down, right? A, a couple of years ago, there was a, a journalist for a large uh, US newspaper who was 
reporting on, again, US politics and became the victim of an online harassment campaign. And his Amazon wedding registry list um, was public. And the people who wanted to harm him online had gone as far back as that and found it. And it had information about himself and his partner and all the rest of it. So again, just seeing what's out there and it's an empowering thing to do because it means that you can take it down and then it won't be used against you. Speaking to your friends and family about their social media hygiene is also something that we can encourage. This is because if you are tagged in something or shared, even though you do your best to keep good social media hygiene, you might end up in something public because of tagging. So a good example of how this can go wrong is a journalist recently um, in Canada, actually, who was reporting on the trucker convoy and she was doxxed on 4chan, a screenshot from Google Maps of her apartment was posted there because of a photo that her partner had publicly shared of the window of the apartment. So people, again, these bad actors could kind of cross-reference those two things and then put that screenshot up, which is really horrifying. So again, that goes to keeping a separation between your personal and professional social media accounts, if possible. That's much easier said than done if you have one Twitter account that you created 10 years ago and that's the only one you have, but it's just something to think about and always be cognizant of what you're sharing as well. That's such an obvious thing to say, but we've seen so many times people go after journalists for very old tweets or old likes or what have you. So those are some really broad tips, but I would encourage everybody there's in addition to to CPJ, to the Committee to Protect Journalists, there is uh, a group called the Coalition Against Online Violence that we are a part of. It was created by the IWMF, that's the International Women's Media Foundation, and there is something called an Online Violence Response Hub. And it's just a really great resource for newsrooms, um, as well as freelance journalists and individual journalists. Thank you very much, Lucy. And I mean, what you've just explained, it's like, I guess most of us probably don't even think about these things and how simple it is for, like you said, the bad actors to get to you. Nicole, um, could you weigh in now on your tips and your advice? I think the first thing is that this has to be from the top down. And what um, the CBC did with the Not Okay Forum was really important in that. It needs to come from management. Even if you have someone in a role as a social media wellbeing advisor, it's all good and well for me to say you'll be supported, but managers really need to be the ones having that conversation and building the trust. And whether that's having the conversation in editorial meetings on a frequent basis or checking in when you do your job reviews and saying, how are you going? Or top management sending out emails about this, I think, the conversation has to start there for it to go anywhere and for, for journalists to feel safe to come forward and therefore be supported. And I think recognising in that that this is not a burden that's shared equally is really, really important as well. On a more practical level, I think having a security team, I honestly don't know where I would be without our security team. They actually feel like the ones who can make real things happen. <laughs> But as you said, that turning the fear of something virtual, turning into physical, it's not often realised, but it's very important psychologically to know that there are things in place and that someone has your back and that that is not something that is just sitting with you, that there's a professional who's sort of 
assessing that threat. And so we always say it doesn't matter if it seems like a throwaway comment that's a death threat. Like we take it seriously and we'll assess it and we'll take the steps. And so you don't have to think about that, which is really important. And then we do have, as Joe said as well, some actual physical steps that we recommend if, if we do think it's there's potential there. Having clear guidelines in general is really helpful. That's something I hear all the time um, is having somewhere that people can go. And, and I guess if you don't have someone in this role, that online violence response hub is a great place to start. And having someone to turn to, whether it is someone in a role like this or whether it's someone else in your team or teams who are the designated person that people know they can go to. And also supporting external talents. So that's something we do as contributors to our content. If, if we're working on something that we know is high risk, we're trying to encourage staff to send them some little guidelines that I've pulled together about preparing for exposure to a larger audience. And that's great for your connections to your communities, but also really good for the journalist well-being. Um, to be able to, to give that to someone when you know that you might be um, exposing them to something is, is really powerful, I think, for, for journalists to be able to do. And that the final one, which I think is really important, is context. Someone mentioned earlier about being targeted by social or political activists on social media and what your attitude should be. And, and I think adding to what Lucy said is contextualizing that, understanding that it's not about you if that's the case. And I think that's so important to be able to see where this is coming from and depersonalize. There was one really fascinating study that showed 59% of articles shared on Facebook hadn't been opened by the sharer. And it, it's fascinating. And it's like, if you've got heaps of people sharing your article and saying how terrible it is and you can have that study to say almost 60% of them haven't read it like that's pretty good at taking some of the sting out of that so I think context is psychologically one of the best things we can have up our sleeve here. I just want to follow up on something uh, Nicole said a lot of times my team my my security team we get at we get the email or we get alerted and, and the well this is probably nothing or uh, is this a threat and the answer always is, it's a threat if you think you're being threatened. We are not going to determine if it's a threat. The threat is if you think you're being threatened. And then, you now we can give advice on, do you think it's actionable to point to police with it or whatever, but that, that's different. If you think it's a threat, it's a threat. And that's a very important piece to the mindset when you're helping people on online harassment. What I'd like to know, Luz, here is, do you believe that newsrooms or organizations, as someone who doesn't work in a newsroom now, do you think that they are doing enough um, in their response currently to the digital safety threats that are facing journalists? I think it's, it's really hard for a lot of newsrooms to know where to start, especially for those who don't have internal security people or for smaller local newsrooms who have not really had to deal with this until relatively recently. So... I always think there's more that can be done because uh, I think it is sometimes a gap between, you know, there are so many resources out there, but it's just connecting people to those resources, especially if this is a relatively new problem for a newsroom. I think that it's complicated, right? Because we are also in a situation where the media industry globally is quite strained. So when newsrooms are thinking about budgets, I don't always think that safety and security comes to mind first. I'm not blaming anyone for that. Every newsroom is different, of course. 
But I do think that there's more awareness now. I know that we at CPJ are hearing from more newsrooms requesting this type of, of support. Um, so I don't want to be someone to blame newsrooms at all. But I think that there's just gently pushing those resources towards more newsrooms would be beneficial. Thanks very much for listening to Media Uncovered. I hope you found that discussion useful. World Press Freedom Day this year is based on journalism under digital siege. And online harm is one of the most pressing ways our sector is being confronted. Digital safety for journalists is critical. And media organisations need to take it seriously, ensuring that they are doing their utmost to look after their staff and their freelancers. You can find more information about this on our website, www.publicmediaalliance.org, where you can also find the resources which were mentioned during this podcast, such as the Online Violence Response Hub. Thanks again to Joe Hill, Lucy Westcott and Nicole White for coming on to the podcast, and of course to Desalon Daniels for chairing the discussion. Thanks to Lucas Thompson, Rachel Sill and Tom Brazier for writing the music. And we'll be back for a new episode at the end of next month, where we'll be once again looking at journalist safety and its impacts on democracy. Thank you.